Tonight, a fresh look at the affordable housing crisis and how New York's trailer parks can be part of the solution. Then, a Chinese-American author's search for identity uncovers family secrets and a dark period in American history. As Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. When we talk about the housing crisis in America, there's one type of housing that's seldom part of the conversation, but should be. Mobile homes. About 20 million Americans live in one. In fact, mobile homes and trailer parks represent the largest source of unsubsidized affordable housing in the country. For many experiencing housing instability, mobile home parks represent the only housing option that they can actually afford. But as the new PBS documentary titled A Decent Home shows, mobile park residents are often vulnerable to predatory practices and no-cause evictions, something that residents and activists across the country are looking to change. Let's take a look at a quick preview. Es nuestro hogar. Across America, mobile homes provide much needed affordable housing. Everybody's dream is to have a place that they can call their own. But there's a catch. It's about who owns the land. Most mobile home park residents own their homes, but not the land they live on. As rents skyrocket, the communities are fighting back. A Decent Home on America Reframed. And joining us now to talk about this film as part of our ongoing Chasing the Dream initiative on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity is the director, Sarah Terry, and also with us to talk about where mobile homes fit in the housing landscape in New York State, as well as what New York law says about mobile homes, is Kirsten Keep, senior staff attorney with the Consumer Finance and Housing Unit in the Empire Justice Center's Albany office. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. So this is a, it, it's a marvelous film. It's very compelling and, and very informative, which, which is certainly something you want when you're putting together a documentary. So Sarah, let me start with you as a director here. What was it about this story that drew you to it? Well, it actually took me about seven years to make the film. It I began filming in 2015. And the moment, the click, was reading an article in The Guardian uh, that was focusing mainly on Mobile Home University, which is in the film. You'll see it's a place where mid-level investors are taught to buy and sell parks and make the most money, but which was outrageous enough. But within that story, there was a very short paragraph that said the Carlisle Group is starting one of the largest private equity firms in the world is starting to buy at mobile home parks and the rest of the private equi equity world is watching and that was just like i think the wealth gap is the biggest issue like we face in the world and to think that the wealthiest of the wealthy were buying up 
homes that provide an opportunity for people with the least means to actually own a home. They, I'm sorry, private equity is buying up the parks, mm-hmm. the land, which right. is- we'll get, we'll get to that in a second. We'll talk about that and situation. the significance of that. Yeah, but it was that. It was that. It, it was like, who are we becoming as Americans when this is what can happen? Yeah. It just was too much. Six weeks later, I was filming at Mobile mm-hmm. Home University. I. One of the interesting things, and question I often ask filmmakers, is where the title came from. And this title, A Decent Home, has some legal significance. Explain that to us. It sure does. It For for many years, our working title was That's How We Roll. Um, but I decided that sounded too jokey in the end. Mm-hmm. And A Decent Home just came right into focus, no pun intended, mm-hmm. as we were considering some of the historic legislation around housing in America. And there is a 1949 act that is still on the books. It's the Housing Act, and it pledges a decent home for every American citizen. And I was like, yeah, a decent home. That's what we're talking about. There's your title right there. Jumped out Mm -hmm. at you. Um, Kirsten, let me bring you in the conversation a little bit here. And and I know that in the film, um, the idea that that these mobile home parks can be at least part of the solution to our housing crisis is significant here. From your perspective and the work that you do, is that something that you would agree with? Absolutely. And I will just acknowledge New York State Homes and Community Renewal, New York State's housing agency, really has recognized this in the last five years and has developed products um, around financing. But absolutely, there are about 1,800 mobile home parks uh, parks throughout New York State, and I think there are just under eighty-five thousand or so households um, uh, in mobile home parks. So it really is a key piece to the affordable housing um, fabric in New York State. Yeah, Sarah, let me come back to you, to your travels. As you said, you seven years to put this together, and and the film shows various locations. We know that that there's a bit of a stigma that mo- many people might attach to the notion of living in a mobile home in a a trailer park. What did you find with regard to that idea of a stigma in your travels? You know, that stigma was part of the stereotyping um, that I wanted to break, Hmm. that I I wanted to, I, I knew people who lived in mobile home parks and a part of the reason we have those stigmas is it's media and Hollywood representation of them as last end resorts, as meth lab, you know, places. And and yet I I wanted to understand more about the people who lived in these parks and, and what made them what made these communities home. So the I'm consciously portraying home throughout the whole film with um, each of the parks. And I found one of the main stories in the film is about a low income park in Aurora, Colorado, that's mainly Hispanic. Uh, We've often, historically, mobile home parks have been white landscapes, that's changing. I also wanted to show you, I wanted to throw in a little surprise that that would sort of go, oh, you think you know what what a mobile home park looks like and you think you know who lives there? And so there's a, a park in the film that's literally right next door to Google headquarters, mm-hmm. where Google employees alongside fixed income seniors live because they can't afford housing anywhere in Silicon Valley. So it's just a way of, I was just trying to shake you up, you know, to show you that landscape. There's a park in Iowa where, you know, a retired grandmother is leading the battle against the private equity firm that that bought it. 
but their home, their community, their places where people care for each other and care for their homes. And it's where they feel they've got a shot at, you know, what we call, have called the American dream. Let me come back to a second. Again, Sarah, to you, and then I'll, Kirsten, I'll get back to you in one second. But let's go back to what we talked about before, where you were saying that all of a sudden these high-level um, financial firms are buying up these mobile parks. Now, if someone's not familiar with the notion of ownership, they might say, well, that maybe that's a good deal for the people who own the mobile homes if somebody's going to throw some money at them. But as you talk about in, in the film, there's there's a, a significant catch-22 here in terms of ownership of, of mobile homes, which allows that to happen. What is that? Explain that to us. The trick um, that, that we've alluded to is the fact that the park owner owns the land and um, the the owner of the home that's on the land has to pay rent for that land. And there is almost no protection uh, anywhere in the United States. It's changing a bit in recent years, but almost no protection for park residents in terms of how often the rent can be raised by how much the rent can be raised. And it's just been this little pocket um, that was sort of a mom and pop business for many years where people weren't interested in making huge profits. And in that kind of private equity way of seeking a, you know, where they, they find voids to, to fill in capitalism, they saw there was money to be made here and with no protections and with very few costs to the park owner, because you're not maintaining, you know, the plumbing, you're not maintaining the building like you have to do for an apartment dweller. And that's how these guys pitch it to investors, like cash flow from day one, good in any market, really needed because so many people are poor and we're in a housing crisis. It's so cold yeah but, but which by the way it, it is you can understand from the personal nature it sounds cold but if you're looking at just dollars and cents the way you described it there is an, an attraction to that kirsten how about in new york state are there any protections in place that can aid uh, people in these types of scenarios so i did mention the new york state housing um agency does have loan products to help mobile home park residents um, become a co-op or an association and purchase a property, the property underneath it when the property comes up for sale. We do have a law on the books that is supposed to give those residents a right of first refusal. So if a park comes up for sale, the residents, um, if they could meet the same price that a third party might be purchasing, that they would be able to purchase it. There are some issues with the bill currently, and actually a bill has been introduced in the New York State Legislature that's under consideration this session that would enhance that bill and improve it and make it more meaningful for the park residents to be able to purchase. Right. Sarah, I'm sure you've, in, in your travels and, and in your digging into these issues, you've seen the pushback, which essentially says, okay, you know, it, there, there's something that just doesn't sound fair here to the, the owners, but in terms of our capitalistic society and the standards that we go by, if the people who own this land can make a profit by selling it, shouldn't they be allowed to do that and to benefit from their investment whenever they made it in this. And, and hopefully the, the, the homeowners will still be accommodated. But why should we step in and, and try to interfere in any way, shape or form with that commercial transaction? What's your answer to that? 
why should we in any way try to temper, you know, predatory capitalism? Like what what society do you want to live in where making a dollar is, you know, the god that rules everything whereas, you know, Gordon Gecko famously said greed is good. You know, this thinking started with Milton Friedman in the early 1970s when he wrote in the New York Times Magazine that the only social responsibility of a corporation is to make more money for its shareholders. And that is flying right in the face of one of the most important questions I think we can ask ourselves right now as Americans. And as that is, is a home something that an individual, a family needs to be safe and to thrive? And are affordable homes something a community needs to have a thriving, you know, sort of a citizen base? Or is a home a commodity to be bought and sold to the highest bidder? Because right now, the winning part of that argument is with, oh, it's just a commodity. Anybody can buy and sell. And you look a little bit further and you will see private equity wreaking havoc in the entire housing market across the country. They're buying up single family homes, turning them into rentals. They are destroying one of the most basic things of a, that I've always cherished about what it means to be an American. You know, that's what this film is, is all about. Like, who are we becoming? If this is the model that we sort of go, oh yeah, life is good, you know, make as much money as you can and hurt anybody you can. It doesn't matter as long as you make a buck. I can't live in that America. Well, it goes back to the title, a statutory guarantee that every American citizen is entitled to a decent home. Uh, it is, uh, we could talk forever about this, but we have a tyranny of our time restraints here, but um, it is, it, it's a, a marvelous film. It does what a documentary should do. It informs and makes you think. Um, so Sarah, to you, congratulations on that. And Kirsten, thank you for filling us in on what New York State and the area is doing. And we'll keep in touch with both of you to see where this goes. Thank you again so much. We appreciate it. You all be well. Thank, thank you so much. Tonight, we're pleased to welcome award-winning author and professor Ava Chin. She is a lifelong New Yorker and a fifth-generation Chinese-American. Her new memoir traces her ancestors' journey from China to New York City. Mott Street, a Chinese-American family story of exclusion and homecoming, weaves personal memoir with American history, taking readers from the building of the Transcontinental Railroad to the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act to the evolution of New York City's Chinatown to Chin's search for her estranged father. Along the way, there are painful revelations about her family story and about America. And the center of it all is a single building in Mott Street, where generations of her family have lived for over 100 years. And author Ava Chin joins me now to talk about her book and her family's journey. Thank you so much. We're so happy to have you here with us. And I, I want to start off by saying it is a wonderful, wonderful book. And uh, so my first question to you, as to all authors, is, and, and this is, as I mentioned, it's personal memoir, it's your family's history, it's American history. Why did you decide that this is the book you wanted to write? So as you already mentioned, and by the way, thanks so much for having me on your show. Um, as you, what you already mentioned, basically, I'm a fifth generation Chinese American. I grew up raised by a single mother and estranged from my father. So for years, I yearned to understand who my family was. At the same time, I'm also the descendant, the proud descendant of a Chinese railroad worker who built the railroad um, that helped to unite the country after the Civil War. 
And these stories were just the tip of something much, much larger that most Americans didn't know about. So I really wanted to tell that story. When you say tell that story, I was struck by the fact that early on in the book, you say you had to grapple with just whose story was this you were going to tell. You talked about, is it these ancestors? Is it your story? Is it the story for your child in their future? Uh, why was that a, a difficult hurdle for you? And what did you ultimately decide about whose story would be told? So in the beginning, I thought this was entirely their stories. I was fascinated by the stories of the railroad workers in my family. I was fascinated by the earliest um, ancestors who came to New York and fought for our civil rights during a period in time in which Chinese weren't allowed to naturalize and to vote. Um, but then I soon realized that this was also my story and the story for future generations because the story was so impactful. Um, you know, the story goes all the way back to a period in time in which our young country was asking itself, who is an American and who is not? Who is one of us and who is not? And what happened back then set us as a country it, from the 19th century onward on a path towards seeing all Asians as being forever foreign and suspicious. And so because my family has been here for so many generations and we helped work on the railroad, which the entire country benefited from, I realized that this story was incredibly important to tell. And it was a story that I could tell and give to my daughter as well. I mentioned the introduction, the Chinese Exclusion Act, and and many people may be totally unfamiliar with that and would probably be somewhat shocked to hear about it. Tell, Give us a, a quick sense. What was it and how does that enter into your narrative here? So the Chinese Exclusion Act laws were the country's first major immigration restrictions. They effectively shut the border for the very first time. And they halted legal Chinese immigration into the country um, and also blocked a pathway towards our citizenship for over 60 years. They started in 1882 and lasted until World War II when the U.S. and China were allies. They also set the tone for future immigration restrictions going forward. So by that, my 1920 almost all Asians were banned into coming into the country. And there were restrictions against Southern and Eastern Europeans as well. And exclusion plays a role in your storytelling here. Yes. Uh, extend that notion a little bit and explain to us the role that it plays. So um, I was really interested in seeing the ways that exclusion impacted people on the ground. And through, and I wanted to tell the story through the lives of my ancestors um, and my family members. Um, and I thought that this would be an interesting way and, and like and a way that people could really understand how discriminatory legislation from the past impacted people on the ground. And it still impacts us today um, in the ways in which we've seen this, it, this new iteration under COVID under, uh, of anti-Asian violence. Um, and so I felt that, you know, I started working on the book even before the pandemic happened. And as our political situation grew worse and worse, and our community began getting scapegoated, I realized that the story was becoming more and more relevant. The, the book I mentioned titled Mott Street, a Chinese-American family story of exclusion and homecoming. And there is a specific building on Mott Street that is an essential character 
in your story here. And again, a fascinating character in your story. Tell us about that. Sure. So my family, all when they wound up in New York City, ended up living in the same tenement apartment building in the heart of New York's Chinatown on Mott Street. And that building provided a refuge for all of my family members. Both sides of my family have lived here. In fact, I realized much later on that generations ago, both sides of my families were upstairs, downstairs neighbors from each other. Families that I thought before this was um, only connected through my own birth. In fact, they had been upstairs neighbors from each other. Um, they had played basketball together. They used to summer out on the Jersey Shore together. So there was a very, very, um, you know, the, the families were interrelated um, and interconnected in ways that I didn't realize before writing the book. What do you think when you walk into that building today? Uh, you know, I feel like the building's DNA is in my bones. And there's a way in which when I'm walking through the corridors or visiting family members and friends, um, I just I feel like the building provided a kind of a womb for my family um, during a, peri a great period of time in which they were really struggling. So um, the, the building holds a special place in my heart. The other thing I like to tell people is that I don't need to leave the country in order to feel connected to my roots and my heritage. I can just go down to Chinatown. Yeah. And, and you know what? That's something that most people don't have, that ability to say, here is one location and my history emanates from this and I can learn so much from it. Uh, I, I mentioned the introduction that that as part of your searching here, uh, deeper into your family, but into your immediate family, you were involved in searching for your estranged father. Tell us that story and how it how that becomes a part of this story in this book. Right. So I grew up raised by a single mother, didn't know my father, and I didn't meet him until I was in my 20s. All I had heard about my father and his family was that they were big wigs in Chinatown. And I absolutely no idea what that meant. Um, but it, I would say that, you know, trying to understand my family was what really led me to this much larger story, um, this larger legacy of what it means to be Chinese in America. Um, I should also tell you that there were periods in time in which my father was really reluctant to talk to me about a lot of these things, right? There were a lot of family secrets that I uncover and I write about. But what I tried to tell him and I tried to tell other family members is that this story isn't just about you and I. It isn't about one single individual, right? This It's through this story that we learn something much larger and more important about American history. This, this book is, it chronicles your own journey, your search for your family. It chronicles their, your family's journey and what they had experienced and what they'd accomplished. But I'm curious as to, as part of your journey here, your journey of discovery, did you find maybe one thing that perhaps you were most surprised by or, or maybe disturbed by uh, or even shocked by? Um, so there were a couple of things that were really surprising to me. Um, the first was I ended up trying to find out more information about our Chinese railroad worker. Mm -hmm. And he ended up living in the country for about three decades. So many decades after the completion of the railroad, he moved to Boise, Idaho. And I went to track his, uh, his whereabouts down. And one of the things I found was so surprising was that he was living in Idaho during a period in time in which 
the state population was nearly 30% Chinese. So, 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 so that was surprising. Another surprising thing that I found out was that, so we have an aunt, um, a white woman who married into the family um, around the turn of the last century. And this was a period in time in which most American families would have disowned their daughters for marrying outside of the race. Um, one of the most surprising things about this was that a couple of years after marrying into our family, the U.S. government revoked Aunt Elva's citizenship because they believed that at the time that a woman's citizenship should reflect that of her husband's. So um, a couple of years after getting married, our Aunt Elva, who was born in New Jersey, who was the da daughter of a Civil War veteran, became, in the eyes of the law, a Chinese. That fascinating and again there are so many parts of this um that are indeed fascinating what did what did your family think about you embarking on this journey you know i guess that depends on you have a huge family and it depends mm -hmm. on who you ask so there's some family members who were really ecstatic and very enthusiastic and supportive of this and they gave me interviews and they pulled out like amazing family records and they shared stories um and that was incredible but there were other family members who were more reticent to talk and i understood that too so there really is it, it's sort of a mixed bag i think that it's hard for people to have the writer in the family, right, who might air the dirty laundry. But I did try to tell people time and time again that this is a much larger story at work. And it wasn't just about you or I. It was about what happened to a large segment of the population during that time period. Last question for you. I got a little bit less than a minute, but I want to ask it anyway. What do you hope readers will take away from this book? Yeah, you know, um, the great aim of this book is that folks can understand that Chinese and Asian American stories can enter their proper space into the larger American story. Well, once again, it's called Mott Street, a Chinese-American family story of exclusion and homecoming. Ava Chin, it is a marvelous work, um, and uh, I think people will thoroughly enjoy it and walk away from it having some good thoughts about who we are as a country and what it means to be a citizen here. Ava, uh, wonderful work. Thank you so much for joining us. You take care now. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app. Mm -hmm.